the world's changing around us, isn't it? You feel like sometimes it's out of control, like too much is happening. Uh, you know, there's a guy who had the same thoughts uh, 2,600 years ago. His name was Habakkuk. He was watching his nation, Israel, fall apart. He was seeing crime. He was seeing everything happen. And he was asking God, what do I do about it as a believer? So in chapter 1 of verse 2 of Habakkuk, he tells us, How long, O Lord, must I call for help? But you do not listen. Violence is everywhere. I cry, but you do not come to save. Must I forever see these evil deeds? Why must I watch all this misery? Wherever I look, I see destruction and violence. I'm surrounded by people who love to argue and fight. The laws become paralyzed, and there is no justice in the courts. The wicked far outnumber the righteous so that the justice has become perverted. Does that sound familiar? 2,600 years ago, he wrote that. And here's the thing. Solomon was right. There's nothing new under the sun. It just tends to come up over and over and over again. You know, our, we've seen our nation over the past generation move from where we were a nation that followed God to now we are the purveyor of everything that God hates. One of the largest cash businesses in the United States is pornography, and we export it all throughout the world. God hates that, but we're busy pushing it. We live in the last days where it seems like everything is getting worse daily. And Habakkuk thought the same thing. His nation had just gone through a leader whose name was Manasseh, who for 50 years had led the country the wrong direction. So far, the wrong direction, it didn't look like there was a way out. For him, God had a word for Habakkuk. And the word was, be faithful in the midst of everything that's going on. Just keep serving, keep following, keep, just, just be faithful. In Habakkuk 2.4, he's told, behold is for the proud one. His soul is not right within him. Well, we already knew that. But for the righteous will live by his faith. The righteous will live by his faith. That changed a guy by the name of Martin Luther pretty stoutly. And then he went to the book of Romans where he also sees the righteous will live by faith. And the book of Galatians where the righteous will live by faith. And Hebrews where the righteous will live by faith. It's repeated in all three of those books and tells us a little different aspect of it. So for Habakkuk, the goal in a world that was changing that he couldn't keep control of was just be faithful. Just keep following God. And in chapter 3, verse 19, he is able to say, Habakkuk is able to say, the Lord God is my strength, and he makes my feet like hinds feet and makes me walk on high places. He saw the world falling apart, but he knew who was in control, and he knew where he was ultimately going. Just like we know who's in control. And by the way, I've read the last chapter. We win. Okay? Great read, love the last chapter. But the whole book is important. What about us? We live in the last days, you know that? If you haven't figured that out yet, I think the video showed us some of that. Does that mean that the message that we have is no longer relevant? No, it is not. It is more relevant now than it has ever been before in history. 
Let me repeat that. The message we have of Jesus Christ and the fact that he died on the cross and rose again is more relevant now than any time in history. And the reason why I say that is that as you study Bible prophecy, if you want the background to it, we've got a two-CD set dealing with prophecy. It's available at the table back, in the back. But the Bible says more about the time we're living in right now than any other time in history. How about that? You study through prophecy, you find out that most of it is this time period, right now, right when we're living. And it says more about it than any other time period. It's kind of an audacious statement, but that's what's in the scriptures. Jesus says in Revelation chapter 22, don't seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, speaking about the book of Revelation, the time's near. Let the one who does wrong still do wrong, and let the one who's filthy still be filthy, and let the one who's righteous still practice righteousness, and the one who's holy keep himself holy. Behold, I am coming quickly. He's talking about the second coming. He's coming quickly. My reward is with me to render to every man according to what he's done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. So how quickly is Jesus coming? We have an event that's going to be taking place on the prophetic calendar and in that, that, that there is no warning to. In fact, there is no prophecy that has to be fulfilled for this next event to take place. It's called the rapture of the church. It comes from a Latin word, rapturo, or the Greek word harpazo, and it's easier to say the rapture of the church rather than say the harpazo of the church. And actually the word in the Greek just means a sudden snatching away. That's going to happen. It can happen right now. That would be a great sermon point. Uh, but it could happen at any point whatsoever. There's nothing that has to happen for the rapture to occur. But there are a lot of things happening right now that we see in the world around us that show us how near everything really is to the second coming of Christ, which happens after the rapture. Now, between the rapture and the second coming of Christ, we know there's a thing called the tribulation. It could be up to, you know, not that seven years, but it, the whole total time period could be 40. We don't know. But how close are we? What are the signs of nearness that this is going to happen? Now, I have a confession to make. I like shopping in fabric stores. I still have my man card, but I love shopping there with my wife, Diane. She likes shopping there. I like being with her. And the thing I've learned going to fabric stores is the sign that Christmas is coming near is the 4th of July has ended and they're putting up Christmas decorations. Guess what's in, store, in the stores now? Christmas decorations. Stop and think about it. Everything we do at the latter part of the year points to Christmas. Everything's a sign that Christmas is coming, isn't it? How do you know that Christmas is coming? Well, you're putting pumpkins out. It's Halloween. That's a sign of Christmas, isn't it? What's another sign of Christmas? Turkeys. Big parade going on in New York and all these turkeys going to, and all the, you know, what does, that, what does that mean? Christmas is near. We're used to seeing those signs. We know that as each one goes by, we know Christmas is closer, right? And when you finally see uh, some fat guy wearing a white beard, you know it's real close. Of course, that has nothing to do with what the real meaning of Christmas is, but that's what we look at. We see those signs, we know it's coming, and up north they actually have cold temperatures. We don't see that down here. It's not something we can count on. It might break and the temperature drops to 80, but hey, you know, we do what we can do. 
But there are signs in the scriptures, and I'm not going to go through all of them, I'm just going to go through a couple of them. If you want more of them, again, we've got a a two-CD set talking about prophecy. But in Daniel chapter 12, verse 4, we get one of the signs that Christmas is near. Actually, the second coming is near. Daniel has been given all these prophecies, and in chapter 12, verse 4, he is told, as for you, Daniel, conceal these words and seal up the book until the end of time. Many will go back and forth, and knowledge will increase. I've always wanted Daniel to then say, Lord, tell me a little bit more, though. He didn't. But the thing that's really interesting is a lot of the prophecies in Daniel have suddenly been opened up to us over the last hundred years. We're starting to understand them. You read commentaries prior to World War I, some of them are questioning what the prophecies are. After World War I, they start to open up a little bit uh, as you start moving forward in time. But what does he say here? uh, Many will go back and forth. Well, that's talking about the speed of travel, speed and frequency of travel. When my granddad was born, the fastest way to get from point A to point B in the United States was by train at the high speed of 35 miles an hour. We all knew that if you did 65 miles an hour, scientific studies showed that at 65 miles an hour, the heart would fail. We knew it. So he went from Kansas to California, and it took about two weeks by train, no problem. But before he went home to be with the Lord, he came from California to Kansas to his brother's funeral, and it took him three hours by air in one lifetime. Before he went home to be with the Lord, men walked on the moon. Any signs of Christmas? I mean, I get frustrated because I have to wait in the airport an extra hour. But a hundred years ago, you might wait at the train station for an extra day. And then we get upset over an hour. The other aspect of Daniel 12.4 is knowledge will increase. Okay, is knowledge increasing? Am I the only one that can't keep up? I mean, you know, we, we can't. A guy by the name of R. Buckminster Fuller wrote a book called Critical Path back in 1982 where he postulates a knowledge doubling curve. He talks about how quickly knowledge is, is doubling. And he starts off by saying that, let's say that everything we knew we knew in 1 AD, then that's one unit of information. So from the, from the creation to 1 AD, that's all the knowledge we have. How long did it take for that knowledge to double? Well, he says about... about 1,500 years. So it doubles by 1500 AD. Great. Well, a guy by the name of Gutenberg invents the printing press. How long does it take to double after that? 250 years. Well, that sped things up a little bit. By 1900 and another 150 years, it had doubled again. By the end of World War II, knowledge was doubling every 25 years. When the book was written in 1982, Buckminster Fuller estimated that human knowledge was doubling every 18 months. And IBM now says it's every 12 months. So if you're in college today, what you're learning today, you won't know four years from now when you graduate. That's real encouraging. My grandson starts college this year, and you know, well, you won't know anything in four years, Isaac, when you graduate. But that's what, it, that's what it points to. Everything is doubling, and, and you can't keep up. Well, it's not a problem. We really can't keep up. That's a sign, by the way, of the end of the age. Daniel tells us that. In Luke 21, Jesus gives us some signs as well, starting in verse 25. 
There will be signs in the sun and moon and stars, and on the earth, dismay among nations. We don't see any of that today, right? No. Perplexity at the roaring of the sea and the waves, men fainting from fear in the expectation of things which are coming upon the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Do we see anybody upset with things going on around the world today? Not, not at all, right? Are they concerned about things in the heavens? I mean, I was reading this week that they're tracking this uh, asteroid that they think killed planet Earth in 100 years. And I'm going like, I'm not going to be here, but and the Lord's going to come before then. But that's interesting to know. Signs of Christmas? Oh, yeah. Signs at the end of the age. The issue, though, is nations in distress. I'll give you one word. Brexit. Did that cause any distress? caught $2 trillion in losses in the stock market when they opened up after Britain said, we're out of here. And I love the EU's uh, response, don't let the door hit you on the way out. Uh, I read the news this week and I see that NATO's moving troops into Eastern Europe. Why are they moving troops in Eastern Europe? Because Russia's moving troops into Eastern Europe. Why is Russia moving troops? Because NATO's moving troops. And by the way, I don't even want to talk about Crimea. Oh, let me give you another word that causes dismay and perplexity among nations. ISIS. Nobody knows what to do about that. People want peace and safety, right? We all do. We want security. But there are some people who want power, and they're willing to do other things to make security and peace go away to obtain power. So it's obvious that to have security and to have Safety, we need positive identification, which will probably be uh, something on the right hand or on the forehead that we can, well, we won't be here. But that's where it's going. That's where it's all headed. What about the church? A couple of weeks ago, we talked about the fact that the church is turning into what we saw in Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 to 22, the Laodicean church. How bad is it with the church generally? I'm not talking about here at Calvary, but I'm talking about the church generally. The Barna Group keeps track culturally of things that are going on within the church. And they've done several recent surveys taking a look at people who are born again or say that they know the Lord and they are born again. They're using that term, born again. And they asked them several questions. Question number one, uh, do you have a belief in the existence of absolute moral truth? Well, you know, the answer for those of us who go to Calvary is, yeah, it's at the Bible. You know, absolute moral truth. God is the one who is the author of absolute moral truth. Whatever's in the scripture is the scripture. And that's it. But their survey showed that 54% of people who are born again don't believe in absolute moral truth. 54%. Lukewarm, sounds like to me. How about the existence of Satan? We all know that he's real. I fight with him every day. Most of us do. He's a real being. Scripture talks about that. But did you know that 60% of people who are born again do not believe that Satan exists? Really? I don't get that. Or we know as believers in Christ that the only way to get to heaven is through Jesus Christ. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Right? Okay, 53% of people who say they're born again think they can earn their way there. I can't earn my way there. I still don't understand why Jesus even died on the cross for me. I wouldn't die on the cross for me. I sure wouldn't die on the cross for you. Because I know me. But Jesus did. 
because he loved us. And as my father-in-law said, I've got to meet that man who was willing to die for me. You know, I had to meet him too. But what does that say to us about the church in general? Or the church in general in the United States is moving towards a Laodicean model. The Bible teaches that every individual who gives their life to Jesus Christ has at least one spiritual gift. At least one. And many of us are gifted in things that just blow my mind. And it's not just what it says in the New Testament. The Old Testament talks about spiritual gifts too. Did you know that there are spiritual gifts mentioned in the book of Exodus of metalworking, carpentry, um, things that you would never think were spiritual gifts. There are people in this room who have the spiritual gift of carpentry that will just blow your mind. Or the spiritual gift of running a business meeting. Or the gift of policing. We don't look at it that way. But God does. There are people here who have the gift of healing. They're called nurses or doctors. And we probably have people who are praying for folks and they get healed too, and we just don't know about it because they're doing it as the Spirit does, and they're not making it into Ken's miracle ministry as other people would do. But as Christians as a whole, how many people believe that they... How many people know that they have spiritual gifts? You know there are 32% who don't? 32%. And, and actually, when you start talking to them about the awareness of the existence of spiritual gifts, the number gets worse. 68% don't know about it. We know about it here because we teach about it. We teach the Bible chapter by chapter, verse by verse. When we get to the good stuff, we really get to teach it. And when we get to the bad stuff, we hurry up and get through Leviticus 15 as quick as we can. <laughs> but that's what we do. But I'm reading the, the results of these surveys, and this is 2010 data. I've, I'm looking at a book right now that's 2014 data, and it's not better. It's worse. It's showing that we're becoming more like the Laodicean church nationwide, and basically the America we have today is the America we've allowed to happen as a country. We don't like what we see, but we have to deal with it. And quite honestly, what the nation needs is, as we saw in the video, revival and awakening. We need Jesus. We don't need a man or a woman. We need Jesus. Period. So the question is, is it too late? I don't think it is. And we have a formula given to us in the book of Second Chronicles that Solomon was given, and it worked in Israel until they blew it so badly that it wasn't going to happen anymore. But in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, God says, if I shut up the heavens so that there's no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my people, and my people, so he's talking about believers, my people, my believers, he's talking to the nation of Israel, but it applies to us as the church, if my people who are called by my name, in other words, I love the Lord, I'm following the Lord. He's telling me, humble myself and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. I'll hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. Well, what we need to have happen, as we saw in the video, we want awakening, we want revival. Well, the first step is, is as a church, as individuals, we have to allow ourselves to be revived. We want, we, how badly do we want Jesus? Is he everything? Or is he just something? Is he number one on the list of one, or is he number four or five down on the list of many? I mean, how bad is it in our nation right now? We have drought in California. 
We have fires in California. In fact, they have a map, and I can't keep track of where they all are. We've got a flood going on in Louisiana right now that they say is biblical in proportion. That's what the newspaper was saying yesterday. And we have a government that allows a tax to take place in our homeland, and then they explain them away. I don't get that. What's next? Do we have time as a nation like Nineveh to repent and return? I think we do. I think that exists. But we're also in the last days. And the Bible is pretty clear saying what goes on in the last days. Is it too late? I mean, Jeremiah, who was ministering at about the same time as Habakkuk, was wanting to pray for his country. He wanted to see Israel return to the Lord. And in Jeremiah 7.16, God said, don't do it. I'm not going to hear you. He says, as for you, do not pray for this people. Do not lift up, cry, or pray for them. Do not intercede with me. I do not hear you. They had gone too far down the drain. And what we see in the church is what we see in Hosea 4.6. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Did you know where the largest mission field exists in the world? It's called the United States of America. We are in the largest mission field that exists. Did you know that there are missionaries currently coming to this country from Africa and Australia and several other countries as well? We used to send folks there. When I went to Bible school, a good friend of mine whose name was Musso Doganiero, he's gone home and be with the Lord, but he came here to learn so he could go home and minister there. Now they're coming here because we've gone that far down. We are a mission field. I mean, the moment you walk out that door, you're in the mission field. We're all called as missionaries, all of us. But based on what I see in the surveys about the church as a whole, I'm concerned as to whether or not the church is up to the task of the mission that's ahead. Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 16, you're the salt of the earth. Do you know that? But if the salts become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? So let me ask this, how salty am I? Am I being salty enough? Or am I not being salty at all? He says, if it's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. That's what happens when salt's no, no longer salt. Then he says, a city set on a, he says, you're the light of the world. That's the next thing he brings up as an analogy. So if you're the light of the world, it's kind of like the lighthouse out here in the inlet, and you see that light go around, and you know that there's a light out there. You know, don't be like the guy who was operating a ship in the fog, and he kept seeing this light, and he says, you need to turn. You know, we're, a, we're a large ship. You, know, you need to turn, and he finally gets a radio call back from that other light saying, we're a lighthouse, you need to turn. You know, that's what we're like. We're that light. We're the lighthouse. We're the ones who turn, turn, move, change. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. People are watching you and they're watching me every day. And if they know that we're a believer in Christ, sometimes they'll do things just to see how we'll react. They just want to know whether or not we're going to blow up or we're going to go, well, you know, that's just the Lord's got that under control. You know, I find I still do both. and That's why I love the fact that I drive down I-95 and I'm by myself. Because when people cut me off and I'm reaching for the death ray, 
then I find myself having to ask the Lord to forgive me, and we go on. But where are we as a church right now? Do you know we're between two verses? Two verses. We are between Isaiah 66.8 and Ezekiel 39.7. Isaiah 66.8 says, Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Can a land be born in one day? Can a nation be brought forth all at once? Guess when that happened? 1948. Israel was born as a nation in one day. And immediately, another nation jumped up and said, we recognize Israel as a nation. And it was not the United States, it was Iran. Figure that one out. We were number two. Truman wanted to be number one, but he wasn't fast enough. I find that interesting, too, that the country that originally recognized Israel as a nation now wants to destroy it. I I, I can't figure that out. But we're on the south side of Isaiah 66.8. Did it occur? The Bible predicted it in Isaiah 66.8. Isaiah wrote uh, 100 years before the fall of Israel. So this is 2,700 years ago. He predicted a nation would be born in a day. It was. No big surprise. So Ezekiel 39.7. Now Ezekiel 39.7 talks about the condition of the world after what's called the Gog and Magog War of, of Ezekiel 38. The Gog-Magog War involves uh, Russia, Turkey, and a bunch of other nations moving against Israel en masse to destroy them and to basically take plunder. And there's a group of nations that jump up and later ask questions. But first of all, what it says in 39.7, when all this has come down and it's all finalized and the battle's over with because God has intervened, God says in 39.7, My holy name I will make known in the midst of my people Israel, and I will not let my holy name be profaned anymore, and the nations will know that I am the Lord, the Holy One in Israel. Now, I've had people want to know whether or not we're going to be here to see that. No, I don't believe we will. I think we'll be in the mezzanine, be doing other things, worshiping God, and that's all in Revelation if you want to know what we'll be doing at that time. But stop and think about it. You want to know where we are in the prophetic calendar? Israel's reestablished in the land. They're there. They're in unbelief. That's also predicted too. And we also see in the book of Ezekiel that a war is coming. And I find it very intriguing that it talks about the fact in Ezekiel that it involves uh, Russia, and you have to understand what the terms are there, and another country called Turkey aligning. And up until about two weeks ago, we thought that would never happen. But two weeks ago, there was a coup. And now guess who are aligning? Russia and Turkey. Interesting. So what about the United States? Where's the U.S. in all of this? I mean, is the U.S. in, in prophecy? Is it, is it possible that the United States is not there because there has been a revival and an awakening and the rapture's occurred and most of the country's gone? I would love to see that. Or is it possible that the rapture's occurred, the believers are gone, and the rest of the country is so stoned out of their minds on legal marijuana that they don't know what they're doing? That's possible too. Don't know. But in Ezekiel 38.13, it says this. this is, you, know, you have these countries that are moving against Israel. And it says this. Sheba and Dedan and the merchants of Tarshish with all its villages will say to you, to this, to this invading army, have you come to capture spoil? Have you assembled your company to seize plunder, to carry away silver and gold, to take away cattle and goods and capture great spoil? They're not saying, 
stop or will attack. They're saying, are you trying to take something that doesn't belong to you? Well, who are these countries? Sheba, again, we study that in the prophecy uh, section. Sheba is Yemen, okay? Dedan is Saudi Arabia, or basically you could say Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, Qatar, uh, the GCC, if you want to call it that. So it's those nations to the southern portion of the Gulf. Tarshish is Britain, the land of ten. Tarshish means land of ten, Britain, land of ten. So when Jonah was going to Tarshish, he was going to Britain because he knew God wouldn't be in Britain. Makes you wonder. Uh, But God was in Britain. He still is today, and, and God's doing a work there. And he tried to run away by going to Tarshish. So who are the villages? Uh, the villages are those countries that came out of Tarshish. The United States, Australia, New Zealand, any other of the Commonwealth nations that you want to think of. So basically what you see is the merchants, Tarshish, Britain, and the villages, those nations associated with Britain, they're more concerned about trade than they are protecting Israel. That's interesting. God protects Israel. God steps up and does it, but they're not doing anything about it. Again, because I, again, I believe the battle takes place after the rapture of the church, and I think the United States probably has a serious economic problem and may not even be able to, to bring an army up to be able to even defend itself, much less someone else. When you stop and think of the number of believers in this nation, if they all of a sudden disappear overnight, what economically will happen in this country when all of a sudden, uh, yeah, let's just say it's only uh, 25 million people. Can't pay, there's nobody paying their bills, nobody going to work, nobody driving to cars, nobody purchasing anything. What happens to the economy? It's gone. It's gone. So now you don't have all those people available to pay whatever it is that we've gotten in debt with. So anyway... Economic problem. That's why we may not be able to have an army at that point. Either way, it's not a response you would expect from a world power, unless the world power is concerned about going into war that they know they can't win. So, you know, at, at that point in history, it's very possible. I like to think it's because there has been a revival and an awakening, and there are so many people who are gone in the rapture, there's just not enough to be able to even have an army. And I just keep praying that the Lord would do a work. In the Olivet Discourse, Jesus adds another thing for us to look at. Matthew 24, verses 15 and 16, he says, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand that those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. For the abomination of desolation to take place, now that's happened in the past, when the temple was standing, a guy by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes walked into the temple, set up an altar to Zeus, and sacrificed a pig. Not a good thing. Well, the Antichrist is going to show up, and he's going to say, worship me, and he's going to set himself up as God in the Holy of Holies. Now, the temple has to be built for that to happen. Surely, that's not moving along, is it? Well, there's an organization called the Temple Institute that has rebuilt all the implements necessary for temple worship to take place. And they announced last week that they are having their second training class on training Levites to be able to do worship in the temple. They've done genetic testing. They, have, they know who the next high priest is going to be. They've already got the uniforms picked out. They've got everything rebuilt. And they say they know where the Ark of the Covenant is. They won't tell anybody. I'm very, whenever I hear somebody say, well, we know where it is, but we won't tell you. Yeah, you don't know where it is. That's what they say. Efforts are ongoing. I mean, the third temple? Yeah, probably going to happen. 
So in light of all of this, as a church, as, as believers, what should we be doing? Well, three things. The first thing we should be doing in these last days is the same thing God told Habakkuk. Get real. Get real? What do you mean? Okay, we serve a risen Christ. He's still on the throne. God is still on the throne. He still saves. He hasn't changed what he's doing. And as believers, for us, if we want to see change take place, we've got to be willing to let God change us, and we've got to make sure that we're in constant communication with him. I like what it says in 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sin, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I, always, when I, I remember reading that going, oh, anybody who's a believer would never say that they didn't have sin. They'd always admit that. But then I have since met people who are believers who believe that when they gave their life to Jesus Christ, they quit sinning. And they tell you, oh, I've not sinned since I became a believer. And I'm like, yeah, you just did. It's called pride. <laughs> they don't want to talk to you after that. You know, not a good thing to say. But we've got to get real. We've got to get real about our relationship with Jesus Christ. He should be number one on a list of one. We should make sure that we're in constant communion with him, constant conversation with him. We're studying his scriptures. Oh, that takes me to number two. Uh, number two, we need to repair our biblical illiteracy. I mean, after all, God helps those who help himself, right? That's not in the Bible. But we think it is. There's several other things we think are in the Bible. It isn't. It's because we don't know this book. Again, this is a great book. I love the last two chapters. We win. But more than that, there is so much in this about life and how we should live and how we should treat each other and, and the fact that Jesus loves me and died on the cross for me and the predictions of him coming to this planet begin all the way in Genesis. And you see how God arranged history and took care to make sure that it just blows my mind. The God who did that gave us this book. And the exciting thing about this book is, I mean, if you were to take a look at communications theory, where if you're trying to jam a message, you want to send the message out enough channels where it's not possible to jam it. The Bible's like that. What's the one chapter on salvation? There isn't one. It's all throughout the Scripture. There's no one chapter on any of the major things in the Bible. You could pull pages out of it and you'd still find out that Jesus died on the cross. And, I mean, it's still there. Basically, the Bible was written to prevent jamming. Again, it points to that guy that 60% of the people say doesn't exist. Satan, who wants to jam that message. We have to repair our biblical illiteracy. And I love what the International Standard Version says when it takes 2 Timothy 2.15 and translates it from Greek to English. It gives you the, the, the right meaning of one of the words. Do your best to present yourself to God as an approved worker who has nothing to be ashamed of, handling the word of truth with precision. Isn't that a great word? To handle the word of truth with precision, I have to know what it says. Now, you don't need to be crazy like me and go, I really want to know what the God's word is. I'm going to take Hebrew. That'll bore you to death. Trust me. I'll take Greek. That'll bore you to death too. 
we got great tools and great helps now that you can use on the internet. You don't have to learn it. The Bible, I mean, you could use a concordance, you can use all these different things and figure out what those words mean. Uh, the, the tools exist. But for those of us who are crazy, we still want to learn the language. But then you find out what it really means. And I've met people who have done that, and they still don't get it right. Eh, you've got to be a believer, first of all. Anyway. Okay, so number one, be real. Number two, repair your biblical illiteracy. Number three, do something. If you're saved, what have you done with it today? I ask myself that all the time. What have I done because of what Jesus did for me today? Jesus did everything for me. I sometimes don't want to do anything. But he wants me to do everything in his strength, in his power. What's your calling? What have you been called to do? Again, it gets back to where's your gifting? Well, you know, I, I, are you called to be in business? Are you called to be uh, working as a carpenter? Is you called to be a plumber like my granddad was? If you've been called to be a plumber, just do it under the glory of God. And, at, and then maybe, I remember when my granddad passed away, uh, we were wondering, well, you know, was he really living for the Lord? Was he really serving? And I had all these people come up and say, you know, I wouldn't know the Lord if I hadn't told me about Jesus when he was fixing my toilet. And you're going like, wow, I never knew a leaky toilet could lead people to Christ. But it did. What's your calling? It's whatever God's got you doing right now. Just do it to his glory, to his honor, to his praise. Where are you serving? Or are you? I have to ask that. Where are you serving? What are you doing for him? Who have you talked to today about him? In 1980, there was this genocidal war going on in a country called Rwanda. And there was a young man who, and the genocide was they were killing a lot of the Christians. Same thing that we see that they're doing today. But there was a young man who was forced by his tribe to either renounce Christ or face death. Well, they put him into a house, told him, think about it overnight. He did. The next morning, they brought him in. They said, well, you, will you renounce Christ? He said, no. They killed him immediately. And then they went to the house, and they found this written on the wall. He had written this on the wall of the house he had been in the night before. And he says, I'm part of the fellowship of the uninshamed. The die has been cast. I have stepped over the line, and the decision has been made. I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ. I won't look back, let up, slow down, back away, or be still. My past is redeemed. My present makes sense. My future is secure. I'm finished and done with low living, sight walking, smooth knees, colorless dreams, tamed vision, worldly talking, cheap giving, and dwarf goals. My face is set. My gate is fast. My goal is heaven, my road is narrow, my way is rough. My companions are few, but my guide is reliable. My mission is clear. I won't give up, shut up, let up, until I've stayed up, stored up, prayed up for the cause of Jesus Christ. I must go till he comes, give till I drop, preach till everyone knows, work till he stops me, and when he comes for his own, He'll have no trouble recognizing me because my banner will have been made clear. How clear is our banner? 
Is it clear that we're a follower of Christ and that we're doing everything and living for him and that he's all that there is in our life? Or are we letting other things get in the way? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the fact that Habakkuk asked you the question and you gave him the answer, just be faithful. We thank you for all the signs that you're showing us that we truly are in the last days. Help us to live that way, Lord. We don't want to be a Laodicean church. We want to be found serving you. We want to be hot, not lukewarm, but hot. We want to be following you, serving you. We want to be spirit-filled, spirit-enabled, and doing all that we can to lead others to you up to the point that you take us home to be with you. Lord, as a church, we just come to you right now and, and we just ask that you would take out of us the sin that keeps us away from you. We repent of that, Lord. We come to you and we want you above all else. And if you don't know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, and you're wondering what we're talking about, then you can have that too. All you got to do is just, Lord, be merciful to say, just Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Come into my life. I accept you as Savior and Lord. And he'll do it right then and there. And then he starts changing you. You don't have to change yourself. He changes you. Lord, we thank you for those who are making decisions for you, for those who are deciding to take that step forward and have a banner that shows you, or who want to know you even at all. Lord, we just ask that you would help us to live for you as we go forward from this place. Just ask this in Jesus' name. Yeah.